0: Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 54, The Second Sino-Japanese War, Part 5, Failure and Retreat. This week, a big thank you goes out to Gary for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special patron-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. Over the last two episodes, we've discussed the growth of the fighting around Shanghai, as it transitioned from a small skirmish inside the city involving troops that were already present to the focal point of both Chinese and Japanese efforts in China. During that transition, the fighting had spilled out of the city when the Japanese landed to the north of the city in a large amphibious operation. After that landing, their focus shifted to expanding the beachhead while trying to compromise the entire Chinese position in and around the city. These efforts had been both successful and unsuccessful, at kind of the same time. Sure, they had captured some territory, they had pushed the Chinese back to their last real line of defense, on the Suzhou Creek, but the gains had been far more costly and far more time-consuming than what was originally hoped. To try and resolve the situation, the Japanese began planning on yet another large amphibious operation, this time to the southeast of the city in Hangzhou Bay. By executing these new landings, if they were even moderately successful, the Japanese hoped to once and for all force the Chinese to retreat, because even a small area of territory near Hangzhou Bay in Japanese hands, would make the city completely untenable for the defenders. These landings would be successful, and the question which both sides would ask themselves was what was next. While the Chinese would eventually give up on Shanghai, their army was far from decisively defeated, and not for the first or the last time, the Japanese would begin to chase them as they retreated away, in this case first to Nanking, and then beyond. We will cover the Nanking campaign up until the Japanese reached the city in this episode. And then next episode, we will discuss the horrifying events that would occur when the Japanese managed to capture the city. But first, let's talk about these Hangzhou Bay landings. As with any amphibious operation, surprise was very important to the Japanese' chances of success, and they would achieve it almost perfectly. The Chinese had not really had any aerial reconnaissance over the bay during the build-up to the landings and they would be caught completely off guard. To compound this problem, the troops around the bay, the units that would be tasked with meeting the Japanese attack, had been drained of men and equipment over the previous weeks and months to support Chinese efforts in other areas around the city. Because of these two Chinese mistakes, the Japanese achieved everything they could have hoped for with the initial landings. They would be able to transport thousands of troops right up to the beaches without being detected, and when those troops landed, they experienced little resistance. The first news of the landings that arrived for Chinese units was the sound of the bombing attacks that were launched from Japanese naval aircraft. There were some small Chinese counterattacks, but they were generally minor and quickly set aside by the landing troops. The landings would begin early in the morning of November 5th, and just under a day later, they were already three miles inland from the beaches. They carried with them enough food for a week and as much ammunition as they could carry, in the hopes of minimizing the supply issues that had plagued earlier Japanese efforts north of Shanghai. After the first few hours, with such a large chunk of territory being under their control in such a small space of time, there was little real danger that the landings would be in any way a failure. After news of these landings arrived back in the 3rd War Zone Command, they initially believed that it was just a distraction, an attempt by the Japanese to trick the Chinese into weakening their lines around Shanghai to meet a feint. Before the landings were taken seriously, both the Chinese officers nearer the beaches and German advisors that were with the Third War Zone headquarters would have to try and convince everybody else that this was a serious problem. Albert Neuiger, one of those advisors, would later write that he felt that the Chinese generals had already mentally accepted that they would soon have to move into a full-scale retreat, and so they had essentially given up. After they were convinced that the landings were a serious threat, they would do everything they could to stop them. But what everything meant in this case was pretty meager. A total of seven divisions and an independent brigade would be sent, and while on paper this was a lot, seven divisions worth of troops, in fact, they were far less than that, because they fell into two categories. The first category, which was the majority, were units that had been involved in heavy fighting during the previous weeks, and they had been withdrawn into reserve for rest and replacements. The other category were units that had just arrived in Shanghai, after doing some substantial amounts of marching to get there in the first place, and they were being thrown into battle. They were being sent to meet the landings with little time to prepare or to properly ready themselves. Or even to really rest. There were two divisions from the Henan province, uh, for example, that had just arrived and did not even really get great information about the lay of the land, before they were given orders to defend the city of Shenzhen and the areas around it until at least November 11th, or three days into the future. In fact, they would be able to hold Shenzhen for less than a day, as the Japanese were also putting serious effort into capturing the city. Given the delayed response, with reinforcements not sent until days after the landings and the lack of available resources to add to the defense, there was never any real hope of Chinese success here, and it spelled doom for the Chinese in and around Shanghai. While they would eventually be convinced to mount a response to the landings, the success of the new Japanese attack just accelerated the already growing feelings that the Chinese had already lost the battle for Shanghai. Even Chiang Kai shek, who had insisted, on a constant and continual defense of the city, was broken of this viewpoint when the full extent of the Japanese forces that had landed in the bay were made known to him. Late on October 8th, while the units were being marshaled to be sent to assist in defending against the landings, the decision was also made to start withdrawing from areas in and around Shanghai. The new goal was to establish a new defensive line to the west of the city and the move to this new line would begin late in the morning of November 9th as troops that were within Shanghai began to move out of the city. In the early moments of the withdrawal, it was carried out in a pretty orderly fashion, but as more and more troops were brought out, this discipline began to erode. The one benefit that they had in those early hours was that the Japanese did not know what was happening, but as soon as they did realize that the Chinese were pulling out, Japanese air power began to really go to work. Because of the limited number of roads in and out of the city, there were really only so many routes that could be taken by large numbers of Chinese troops that were trying to evacuate, and they made perfect targets for Japanese air attacks. This then caused the retreating units to panic, and chaos would, as usual, ensue. All of this was made even worse by the thousands and thousands of Chinese civilian refugees who were also trying to get out of the city, especially once it became clear what was happening. Within the city itself, there was also a mad dash by civilians to make it into the international settlement, with the French police having to resort to violence to keep people out. Here is a quote from a report filed by a New York Times correspondent. Quote, Old and young and mothers carrying infants were ruthlessly clubbed or beaten back with long bamboo poles by the French police. By the middle of the afternoon, the Japanese were in full control of the city and the battle for Shanghai was over after months of fighting. On December 3rd, there would be a victory parade that would move through the international settlement. When this parade moved past some of the sites that had featured in the fighting, some interesting events would occur. For example, when it moved past the place where the Chinese bombs had fallen all the way back on Black Saturday, a Chinese man jumped to his death from the top of the building. Then, on the Nanjing Road, a grenade was thrown into the parade, injuring four Japanese soldiers. These events were just a preview of what was to come, and over the next several months, all around Shanghai, the countryside would see constant simmering resistance from armed groups of Chinese. Shooting can still be heard within the city somewhat frequently during this period due to clashes between the two groups. These suppression attempts would not be completely successful. And even into 1939, there was still a real threat to any Japanese troops moving outside the city, eventually resulting in the creation of several small fortified areas where troops could be stationed to try and provide better security. After the Chinese retreat, there was a lot of blame thrown around Chinese high command for the failure, much of it emanating from Chang himself. Although in the years that followed, these criticisms would mellow out a bit, and he would eventually... Sort of begin to place most of the blame for the failure of the battle to the decision made to not properly prepare for a possible Japanese invasion from Hangzhou Bay. All told, the battle had been very costly for the Chinese army. Numbers are, as usual, all over the place. The Chinese would report they suffered 187,200 military casualties. The Japanese would estimate about 250,000. It's possible that the number is higher than either of those. But more important than just the raw numbers was how those numbers were distributed among Chinese troops. The heaviest casualties were suffered by the divisions that had been committed early, often German-trained and German-equipped divisions that were so important to the overall strength of the Chinese military. Some of these divisions, like the 87th and the 88th, had been used in the early days of the battle in late August, and they would essentially cease to be effective divisions by the time that they were removed. So much money had been spent on these divisions, and now they were gone. Along with the men who were killed or wounded, priceless, and what would prove to be almost irreplaceable, armor, aircraft, and artillery, and and also other equipment, would be lost during the fighting. This equipment had been built up over the years before 1937, and would be very challenging to replace as the Japanese control of all areas of China continued to increase in the following months and years. On the other side, the Japanese casualties were reported at around 40,000, which is obviously far below the Chinese numbers, but also far greater than even the most pessimistic Japanese expectations from the start of the fighting. What they thought would be a quick victory, that would only require a few divisions for a few weeks, had instead demanded the attention of over 100,000 Japanese servicemen and months of heavy fighting. This was just the beginning of the Japanese commitment to the fighting in central China. And even though they had pushed the Chinese army back from Shanghai, the ability of the Chinese to resist had in no way been destroyed, and they would still have to treat it as a threat. This presented the Japanese with a choice. They could sit in Shanghai, protecting the territory that they'd already captured, or they could try and do something about the continued Chinese resistance, a decision that we will come back to here in just a moment.
2: Listen to NerdWallet's Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: For the Chinese, the defense of Shanghai had consumed a huge amount of military supplies and materiel. And even before the battle was over, a new source of those supplies and equipment would be secured. While the fighting was still going on, on August 29th, there would be a diplomatic development with the Chinese government in Nanking announcing that it had signed a non-aggression treaty with the Soviet Union. This was important because much of the hopes that China had in any long war with Japan came from abroad, and they hoped that any serious fighting within China would eventually result in either the Soviet Union or the United States entering into a war with Japan. The basis for this idea was that neither of those countries would want Japan to continue to grow in strength, as it would threaten both of their interests. If the Japanese started to take over too much territory, they would see the threat and and decide to intervene before all of that new territory, population, and resources could be properly utilized to bolster Japanese military strength. During the fighting after 1937, the Soviet Union would prove to be a critical source of weapons and materiel, especially after support from Germany began to greatly diminish. However, it would still take a lot of time for the amount of equipment used in Shanghai and destroyed there be made good, but eventually the total contribution of the Soviet Union to the Chinese war effort between 1937 and 1941 would be over 1,200 aircraft, 2,000 pilots, 1,600 pieces of artillery, thousands of technical experts, and a whole host of other bits and bobs that were necessary to fight a war. While the Chinese were trying to improve their international relations, the Japanese were always doing the same. During the mid-1930s, they had greatly benefited from events in Spain because the Spanish Civil War diverted the attention of every European power to Western Europe instead of to China. This was most important when it came to the British and the Soviets, with Soviet military aid being sent to Spain, which might have instead gone to China. Germany had provided a large amount of military aid and assistance to China during the 1930s, but this began to change in the late 30s they would become closer to Japan, especially after the creation of the Anti-Comintern Pact in November 1936. At that point, the German military advisors were not instantly removed from China, almost entirely due to concerns that if they were just pack up and leave, they would be quickly replaced by Soviet military advisors, which neither the Japanese or the Germans wanted. Or, as the German foreign minister would tell the German ambassador in Tokyo, quote, The Japanese cannot reprimand us for the fact that the Chinese bought arms from us in a limited amount. The deal developed on a purely economic basis. Withdrawal of all military advisors in China would at the present moment mean that we are taking sides against Nanking and is therefore out of the question. A withdrawal of the advisors could possibly lead to the vacated positions being occupied by the Russians. That is a consequence which is also undesirable for the Japanese. There were even some attempts by the German government to mediate between the two sides in China with limited success. Eventually, the exact fear of the Germans would come to pass, with Soviet aid being sent to help Nanking and Soviet advisors as well. But by that point, German attention was firmly focused on events far closer to home. While the fighting had been ongoing in Shanghai, elsewhere in China, Japanese-controlled territory continued to expand, with several provincial capitals in various areas of northern China falling during the last four months of 1937, including the capitals of Haibei, Shandong, and Shangxi. In all of these areas, the resistance from Chinese units was less than fantastic, to put it kindly. There was a wide mix of armies and units involved in these efforts, with many groups that were technically aligned with Nanking, but not really under their control, and then also local warlords who who were not really aligned with Nanking, and then finally the communists were also thrown into the mix, who were kind of doing their own thing in many cases. The result was complete confusion, and for civilians in the path of the fighting, an impossible choice to try and stay at home to weather the storm or to take to the roads in the hopes of finding safety. This choice was hardest for the poorest, with many wealthier Chinese able to pick up and leave pretty quickly. Many would choose to become refugees to escape the Japanese advances, which would place incredible strain on Chinese roads and rails as well as local economies as large groups moved through in total somewhere between eighty and a hundred million people, a fifth of the population in many areas were on the move. Those numbers are also possibly quite low because getting a real number is almost impossible, as there was just no way for the Chinese government to gain accurate statistics given the state of the war. In the countryside, there were often also large bands of armed guerrillas, or, or bandits, depending on how you look at it, maybe. Some were motivated by ideological beliefs, like with many of the communist groups, but others were just driven by the goal of surviving in a totally hostile environment. For those that would stick around, especially in the cities, They would be forced to endure a Japanese occupation that was often a violent and oppressive experience. After the Chinese retreated from Shanghai, the plans in Tokyo were to pause for a bit to consolidate their position while the future path was determined. At the time, this did not necessarily involve a move deeper into central China. However, within Shanghai, many of the Japanese commanders wanted to almost immediately start expanding the conflict with the number one target for this expansion being the capture of Nanking, with the goal of moving on the capital quickly to not allow the Chinese to kind of recover from what had happened. Nanking had been the capital of Chang's nationalist government, and the hope was that capturing it would bring a quick end to the war. On November 15th, Lieutenant General Yanagawa Hasuki, the commander of the 10th Army, would demand that the offensive to capture the capital be ordered. On November 22nd, Matsui, the commander of the Central China Area Army, or Yanagawa's commanding officer, relayed the request to Tokyo and then also relayed back the approval for the operation. Among all of these leaders, the theory was that the capture of Nanking would have a decisive effect on the war, but there was one problem with this plan. Chang and the nationalist government were very aware that an attack on Nanking could be launched, and they had started their preparations for such an attack in October, so before a lot of this gets going. In this case, those preparations came in two forms. One was to bolster the defense of the capital, it did happen, but also, and maybe more importantly, for the government to abandon the city as quickly as possible. The nationalist government would move to Wuhan, and while Nanking would still be defended, it would no longer hold anything of real strategic value. It still certainly had the symbolic value of being the capital of the government, but symbolic losses would not be fatal. Regardless of what was happening in Nanking, on December 1st, the official orders would be given for the offensive against the capital to begin, although the initial attacks in the pursuit of the retreating Chinese forces had actually started a week earlier. In their movements towards Nanking, the Japanese would move in three separate columns, and as they moved through the countryside, they left destruction in their wake. While traditionally the stories of Japanese atrocities do not really get going until they reach the city. In actuality, they began during the march between Shanghai and the capital. There were many reasons for this. A general racism, a lack of proper logistical support that forced units to live off the land, and just no regard for human life. In December, they would reach the outskirts of the capital. Chang would fly out on December 7th with the last of the nationalist government, Most of the foreigners who had been in the city were already gone out of fear that it would turn into another lengthy battle like Shanghai. Economic activity in and out of the city essentially stopped completely, which was a serious problem as the city had been forced to absorb massive numbers of refugees from the surrounding areas. Food would soon begin to run short, uh, along with almost every other essential good. The city itself had rivers surrounding it on two sides, and the Japanese would take up positions to the southeast to block any traffic into or out of the city. They were now ready for their final assault, which we will discuss next episode.